Hello and welcome to The Widow Podcast. I am your host, Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I am a widow, a mum, a health coach, a life coach and grief coach. I want to help you see that you really can create something truly meaningful after loss. You have everything you need within you and I want to help you find it so you can see how capable and amazing you really are. Helping you find a more positive way through your grief. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Widow Podcast. I'm so excited this week. I'm so excited to be absolutely blessed to have the wonderful Marie from Empowered Through Grief come and talk to us today. We're going to be exploring a very interesting topic sort of our our loss of identity. Who are we in our new world? It's going to be amazing. Marie is amazing. I'm sure you all follow her on Instagram already um, or Facebook, but if you don't do, because she just shares so much wisdom, so much inspiration. I mean, Marie, I don't know quite how you do what you do in terms of the way you articulate your feelings and your thoughts around grief and loss. It's so powerful and it's so moving. I'm so jealous of the way you're able to write. It's amazing. But thank you. Thank you so much for for giving your time to come and talk to us today. And welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words. I just, I spend a lot of time thinking about death. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where all the language comes from. But thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, it's wonderful. Before we get into the, the nitty gritty, um, I'm sure most people know your story, but do you just want to share sort of a little bit about your, your story and, and what happened to you that sort of brought you here to, to where you are now? Yeah, so um, I lost my life partner, my best friend, my person back in 2017. Um, Andrea was the love of my life. (laughs) And he was the strongest, fittest, healthiest person that I knew. Um, he, we would fight all the time because he would play hockey like two times a week and baseball in the summer. And he was never home because he was so active. He would go to the gym every day. And then out of the blue in the fall of 2017, he started having some pain in his abdomen. And I thought nothing of it because he was such a baby with physical pain. He would get a cold and be out in the bedroom for like four days. And he was like, I'm dying. So I thought nothing of this pain at all. Um, But then the pain got, you know, more and more intense to the point where he couldn't work anymore. He couldn't sit still. um, He couldn't sleep. And and he started losing weight. And he was finally diagnosed in January. Uh, So January of 2017, he was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And he was given three to six months to live. And so that was obviously a huge shock. And that's the moment my whole life changed, our whole life um, together changed, but my life changed quite a bit. And so I, you know, right away kind of, I remember after the diagnosis, I just took a a few days off of work and we were home and we were just kind of watching TV and hanging out and thinking about like, how are we going to even tell people about this? And then I had to go back to work and I was, I was going, I was teaching at the time I was teaching entrepreneurship to high schoolers. And 
I remember I had to go into the office and prepare things for an animation I was doing with kids. And I was in my office and I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, this isn't where I'm meant to be in this moment. I am meant to be by his side every step of the way. And so I remember walking into my boss's office and crying and saying, I can't, I, I can't, I can't be here. Um, I just had such a, such a powerful inner knowing that I just had to quit work and I had to just put all of life on pause just to be with him. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't, I mean, obviously he was terminal, but you know, you always have hope. So um, I just, I quit everything and I was with him every single day after that. Just, we went through the whole, you know, chemo treatment, um, just everything. We, you know, cultivated the hope until, you know, until the hope shifted into like the hope at first was like, you know, he's going to be cured and he's going to be like the 4% who survived pancreatic cancer. And then the hope shifted into, you know what, more time. Like he's just, we're just going to keep him here longer. You know, he still has so much life to live. He was so young. He was only 44. And, um, and then the hope eventually shifted to like, I just hope he has a good death, you know, and he gets to live out the rest of his days in the way whatever way makes him feel like he's in control and you know he wanted to die as he lived on his own terms he was very very adamant about that and so I just became his person his advocate and you know the person that kind of stood between him and the rest of the family when everybody wanted him to keep pushing and fighting and like you're gonna beat this and he was like no I'm I'm going down like if I'm gonna go down anyway I'm just I don't want to go down fighting and treatment. I don't want to be in the hospital. I just, I just want to be home. I want to be with my loved ones. I want to, I'm dying and I just want to die my way. And so I was with him until he took his last breath. And um, I don't know that I knew at the time. I mean, I obviously knew it was going to change me, but I don't think I knew how deeply it was going to change me, like on a human level and also just my entire life. Like I look around now at my life and I'm like, oh my gosh, nothing is the same, you know? Mm. And yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> that's so powerful. And I think what's so wonderful about what you said there is that you really did listen to what felt right for you, didn't you? You know, you didn't layer that with any stuff. You just listened to what you needed to do, what your body was guiding you to do. You know, I'm doing it. I'm quitting my job. I'm going to, I'm going to be with him. I'm going to make sure that he, you know, gets the the, the life, the death that, that he wants. And you did that. And wow, I mean, that what an amazing gift to give someone you love. It, I mean, the heartache that comes with it is horrendous, mm -hmm. but a lovely thing to do for somebody that you love, you know, and I'm sure he really treasured that. And it sounds like he was very open about you know what he wanted and, and his death and stuff um mm -hmm. but yeah just you know we we have to find our way don't we but as you said there you know just everything shifted didn't it everything mm -hmm. shifted and everything does shift which is super scary isn't it and we don't want it to shift we want things to stay as they were we didn't we didn't want it all to change so in that in at what point did you, I guess, realize or accept 
that this had changed you and your life in such profound ways and that you allowed those those changes to happen? Did you fight them at any point or, or did you understand that that was a part of the process quite early on? Mm. It's such a good question. <clears throat> I, I don't think I fought the changes that were happening within me. I, I don't even think I can pinpoint a moment where I realized that I was changing. It was just, it was so, I really had this inner knowing. I've never felt more guided in my life and more in touch with my intuition than I did from the moment he was diagnosed until his death. I felt like I am exactly where I'm meant to be. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And there's nothing more important than, than this right now, you know, and I had no doubts. What I was fighting with was the reality of what was happening, that I was fighting a lot. I felt like sometimes I, I felt like a five-year-old having tantrums. I was in the car and I was screaming, I don't know at who, and I was just like, this can't be happening. So I was fighting the reality that he was dying. There was a lot of resistance there, obviously, but the changes that were happening within me just felt like, I don't know, they felt almost like so natural. You know, it was just like, of course, this would change me. Of course, this would alter my entire life my perspective on life on love on death um and so it just unfolded I think in a very like organic and natural way god that's amazing that is amazing and and actually I mean I know you work with with a lot of people in grief would you say that you meet many others that feel like that or, or do you find that most people do fight it and find it quite hard to accept those changes? Mm, I think <clears throat> grievers are so unique, you know? Mm. I, think, I think that a profound death changes you. I think that I see, and not everyone, you know, but most grievers I sit with do feel like they've been changed by death, by loss. Um, and some of them just kind of, like me, just roll with those changes and they're, they kind of, there's an acceptance that of course I would be changed by this. And some of them fight it, of course, some of them fight and they miss who they used to be. And yeah, there's that, you know, that grief for our person, that grief for the life we had that can no longer be the grief for the future that we were supposed to have that we no longer get to have and the grief for the person we used to be before the diagnosis before the accident before before you know before the death do you miss that person do you miss marie that the person that was that that, that was you know with andreas and and you know living that life with him and walking that path i miss him i miss our life i miss our love um, I'm very comfortable with the version of me that I am now. It's almost like, it's almost like, I don't feel like this has changed me. Like, I don't, I don't feel like this has been a 180. It's almost like it's revealed who I really was all along, but it's just much more clear now, you know, who I am, what matters to me, my values. So there's a clarity but I think those pieces were there even before, even with him. Like I remember little glimpses of the things that mattered to me then, you know, those are still the things that matter to me now. What I do miss though is um, 
I miss my, you know, I don't know how to say it in English, but I miss my, I miss being naive. You know, I used to be very naive. Um, I used to, I felt a little bit more maybe innocent, um, you know, when he started having pain and he started losing weight and he started getting, obviously he was very sick. It never crossed my mind that he could have cancer and he could die, you know, and that's the part of myself that I miss because today, if I wake up with a headache, I think I have a brain tumor, you know, Same. and if, if my, my mom recently had to go to the hospital because she was having chest pains and I thought you walk into the hospital and you walk out with a terminal diagnosis, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to lose my mom. And when she walked out of the hospital and she was like, oh, it's okay. You know, we're going to investigate. But the doctor sent me back home. I'm going to be fine. I'm shocked that she's not, (laughs) she's not given a terminal diagnosis. So I have this, you know, maybe health anxiety, or I just, I'm just so aware that people die. And I'm so aware that it doesn't just happen to other people because it happened to us. And I'm Mm -hmm. so almost it's almost like I'm waiting, you know, who's the next person who's going to go. That's the part that the, the change in me that I maybe that I, that I dislike. <laughs> yeah. Miss that kind of. I, ignorance isn't the right word, is it? That, that, you know, you, we live, we lived, I, I know exactly what you mean that like you live in a bubble where, you know, stuff happens and you know, people die, but it happens to other people and, and you just feel like safe and untouched almost don't you in in your little bubble but then that bubble is burst isn't it and all of a sudden all those horrible things that happen to other people happen to you and then it just becomes so much more realistic that it could happen again and and you almost got like you say you know when you said that about never having a headache it's a brain tumor I'm exactly the same any slight pain or anything it's like it's kind of not funny, but it, but it, you've got to laugh sometimes, haven't you? Because it can, can drive you absolutely insane. But I think it's so beautiful the way you feel like it's revealed parts of you that were there and that have been brought to the surface. And that's something I love to try and remind, you know, the people that, that I work with is that, you know, this is going to real reveal parts of you that you didn't know existed but they are absolutely there and they're going to make you so proud of, of who you become and I think that's such a lovely way of, of looking at it um, and just understanding that these things do shape us in life don't they they do have a, a profound effect on us but I was I was looking through your stuff on on Instagram and I saw that you'd listened to a, a podcast with Liz Gilbert and that had inspired you to to ask your followers some questions and and it kind of inspired me to want to ask you the question and you said in in the podcast that instead of sort of saying how are you the 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 podcast host asked Liz and she who are you now so I'd like to ask you Marie who are you now Mm, oh my gosh it's such a it's such a big and hard question but such a good one um like, how do we define ourselves as individuals, as humans? Um, who am I? I think I define myself now, um, whereas before I might have defined myself by, like, the roles I used to play or, you know, the things I used to do. I think now I define myself much more um, by my values and what feels meaningful to me 
in this version of my life, you know, and in this version of my life where I'm so aware that everybody dies <laughs> and where I'm, where I'm like fearful of losing people. Um, what matters to me now are my commitments. What matters to me now are my relationships with the humans that I love that are still here. What matters to me now is, is living a life that is of service in some way, you know, taking this, this thing that I've been through that felt has felt like very dark at times, very painful, you know, very just taking that despair, that hopelessness, that darkness and somehow weaving light through it for maybe someone else, you know, who's in the dark and who's in despair and who's in that hopelessness. So that is really what I think keeps me going, you know, the, the feeling of being of service. Like if I write one Instagram post and it touches only one person and I don't do anything else with my life, I'm like, well, it's, it will have been worth it. You know, mm-hmm. um, what matters mm-hmm. to me now is my, my spirituality, my bond with Andrea, you know, I still feel very connected to him. I feel like the work I do in the world is because of him is with him. That matters to me. Um, and I guess what, who I am, I'm someone who's trying to live with maybe more integrity where my outer life now matches my inner life. Um, and, you know, I fail at this all the time, but I try, I strive to just live a life of integrity in line with the values I hold closest to my heart. How did you go about discovering your values because it's big isn't it and it's something that I didn't really understand before my husband had died and and something that I've worked on and and continue to work on because I think they're kind of evolving um, for me still but how how did you I mean is that something you've always been aware of your values or is it something that you've worked on since your loss I think I think I had a general idea of what mattered to me before, but it's almost like, you know, cancer, um, like a life-limiting illness, me being with Andrea, knowing we were facing death together, just really brought to the surface, like so much clarity around what really matters. And so when he was still here, but he was sick, what mattered to me, it wasn't my job because I quit my job (laughs) and it wasn't money or status or you know, the material things we had, um, we both weren't working. So we were, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, suddenly it's like our careers didn't matter. Our status in the world didn't matter. How much money we were making every month didn't matter. All that stuff just like went right out the window. And what mattered was time, the time we had together, the time we had with our loved ones. What mattered was us sitting and having really honest and truthful conversations and just connecting with each other what mattered was allowing him to live out his death in integrity with who he was. And so, so all of those things that are still very much a part of my life now, it's like they just, there was so much clarity when we were facing death. And I think I try and it's, it's hard, you know, it's like, I'm no longer living with cancer as a reality in my life day to day. So sometimes I forget, you know, but I try to keep the end in mind. I try to keep in mind that life is really short, that I don't know how long I have. I don't know how long my loved ones have. And so keeping the end in mind allows me to just, again, have so much clarity around what matters. And what matters is love, commitment, you know, doing work that feels meaningful, 
um, creating a context for my life that is meaningful enough that it can hold my pain because I still carry a lot of grief, a lot of pain and life is hard, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I know that more hard things will come, but if I kind of create a meaningful life for myself, whatever hardship, hardships come my way, I'll be able to hold it because my life every day I wake up and I'm like, there's, there's a reason I'm here, you know, like this day feels meaningful and I have things to do. Um, and so I don't know, it felt very, I, I didn't sit down and read a book or <laughs> I didn't do like an exercise with my therapist to find my, my values. I think they just unfolded over time as I kept remembering the reality that life is so finite and that the time we spend with our people is limited, you know, and keeping that in mind just really puts everything back into focus for me. Do you think then it comes to light what you value through a very heightened self-awareness like really understanding what helps you and what hinders you and, and really kind of leaning into what feels good and allowing yourself to do more of that do, do you do you think that that's because uh, because it's hard isn't it because I work with a lot of people that really struggle with this kind of knowing who they are at their core like what's important to them you know, it's like you kind of ask the questions and it's like, I don't know. I don't know. You, you know, because you're just so lost, aren't you, in, in that world of, of grief. And I think you're right. It does unfold over time for sure. But do you think it takes a certain level of self-awareness to, to allow that to be seen? I absolutely, absolutely. And I feel like in my own journeys, I'm almost five years out now. And I've had to really pay attention. You know, it's almost like you have to pay attention to your life, mm. to pay attention to what's happening inside you. And as you're moving through your life, I've had to notice, you know, like what makes me feel alive versus what makes me feel apathetic, mm. you know? And at first it's all about just witnessing. It's almost like I do this exercise with, um, I have a group for, widows who are rebuilding kind of together and figuring out who they are and what they want in this next phase of life. And, you know, the first month when we're together is just about just witnessing ourselves, just almost taking, um, like being an observer of ourselves, just noticing our emotions, noticing when we feel connected to joy and aliveness versus when we feel, you know, that despair, that darkness come back and then, okay, well, what did I do? You know, what was I engaged in? Who was I mm. connecting with mm. that made me feel this way or that way? And then through becoming a witness of ourselves, I think we deepen that, that self-awareness and we start to uncover, you know, what helps us, what hinders us, um, you know, what coping mechanisms, you know, in the beginning, I think in early grief, we all have coping mechanisms that you know, we need to survive, but that eventually we grow out of, or we need to let go of because they no longer serve us. Mm -hmm. um, but all of that, yeah, it takes time, a lot of witnessing, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of, it's, it's, a, it's a process, you know, and I think we want to wake up one day and have it all figured out. But I think, I think that's a fantasy. I think we're going to spend our lives figuring ourselves out. <laughs> I, do you know what? 
I think you're so right. We're all just winging it, aren't we? Like every (laughs) day we're winging it and we're just trying to figure it out as we go. But it definitely, for me, in my journey, I have learned that I can and I do figure it out. And that's the point. I might not always have the answers and I might not always know what it is I need or where I'm heading, but I know when I'm heading in the right direction and I know when I'm not. And I just think you've you've kind of almost got just keep taking those steps that that feel right and aligned and and you do you you figure out the next step don't you as it comes a hundred percent but did you have to try a lot of new things in order to discover what sort of fueled your your soul your passion you, you know that those moments of of joy of enlightenment of of peace contentment you know did you did you try new things? Did you discover new things that allowed you to, to find that out for yourself? Yes. <laughs> so actually, I had a very interesting year after Andrea died. You know, I, I gave myself a whole year. And this obviously was before the pandemic. So I know that my reality was different than a lot of maybe a lot of grievers who are more early on in their grief. But I gave myself a whole year to just do whatever I wanted. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And with no guilt, that's the key, no guilt. And I said, you know what? And I, I was also very bold in early grief because I had seen death, like I had seen it, you know? And I was like, well, this is where I'm headed to. So I might as well just freaking live, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I had, I almost felt a bit fearless in that first year, which is interesting because it was obviously the hardest, the hardest time of my life, but also the most bold and fearless time of my life. And I think that was really helpful for me just to give myself permission to, you know, I traveled a lot. Like I, I felt like I was, felt like I was crawling. I needed to crawl out of my skin. And so I, I was constantly trying to escape, I think my, my reality and my day to day. And so traveled a lot and I reconnected with friends. I hadn't, I hadn't had time, you know, to, to meet with in a long time because of everything I'd been through. I reconnected with my love of writing. So I used to love writing when I was young. Like I remember being a little girl and reading books after books after books and writing stories when I was like seven years old. And I reconnected with this old passion of mine, you know, that I had put aside because, you know, life and, you know, babies and everything. So I I allowed myself to just reconnect with things that made me feel like creative and alive and made And some people looked at me in that first year and said, you're escaping, you're actually escaping your reality. Like you're just trying to get out. You're trying to, you know, push it down or like, I don't know, just put it to the side and just, but I, I, that's what I needed in that first year. I needed to escape. I needed to live. I needed to feel alive. I needed to write. I needed to figure myself out. And I gave myself permission to do that. And that felt like a very important part of my grief process, you know, and I don't know in that first year, if I spent enough time sitting with my feelings, it doesn't matter. I mean, that grief is always going to be with us. So there's going to be time to sit with the feelings when you're ready. But obviously, I wasn't ready. (laughs) I wasn't ready then. And I gave myself permission to do what felt right. Um, And as you said, you know, and as someone I admire a lot. Um, She's a writer called Glennon Doyle. And she says, you know, you just do the next right thing. Like you don't have to see the path in front of you, but there's an inner knowing about what's right. Like what is the next right thing for you? Like what's right in front of you? 
you know with what's right in front of you what you need to be doing for yourself. And it's just about mm-hmm. letting go of people's judgments and perception and stories about you and just following that knowing and just doing the next right thing for yourself, you know? And, and so, yeah, that was, that was a crazy year. <laughs> It sounds it, but just like you say, exactly what you needed to do. But how did you do that with no guilt? I mean, guilt is like just a constant companion of grief, isn't it? And it's something people grapple with so much of, you know, how can I go off? How can I do things? How can I see the world? How can I have fun when my person has dead? It's that feeling of of betrayal almost. And I shouldn't be doing this. How did you, how did, how did you let go of that? Hmm. You know, there were two parts of me. There's the part of me that, of course, you know, the survivor's guilt and that I get to do this and he doesn't. That was, that was present. But there was another part of me that was stronger at the time. And, you know, Andrea did not want to die. And he was so angry in the face of his own death. And he felt like it was way too early. And I remember having many conversations with him. And I think that helped me with the guilt. Mm. Many conversations where he was like, you are so young. You have so much to look forward to. You have so much life to live. And if I could, I would live. I wouldn't put anything on hold anymore. I would live full out. You know, he had a lot of regrets. And I remember one of the things he told a friend of ours when he was literally in the hospital on his deathbed, he was like, he told our friend, our friend, Lewis, he said, Lewis, I have a big freaking box of regrets. And he's like, your only job in life is to make sure that your box is smaller than mine. And I was like, yeah, you know, so that part of me, that part of me that could hear him in my mind when the days I just wanted to kind of stay in bed and just be in the darkness. Obviously I had those days, but I could literally hear him in my mind saying, you have your health. <laughs> what are you doing? You're, you don't have pancreatic cancer. You're not like, you know, you don't weigh 85 pounds on your deathbed. Like get up and go do something. Like there's sunshine outside. Like your son is wanting to play with you or just there's life to be lived, you know, and you get to live it. And so I heard him and I think that voice was stronger than the voice of guilt. Oh, you've made me go all funny saying all that, like that just so powerful and so moving and so true. Like it's almost, and and it's, it's kind of, obviously my husband died suddenly, so it was very different, but you know, I always think if, if he could have lived, like he would be living full out, like who wants to die at 44, you know, and have that box of regrets of things you didn't do, like, get out there, live the life, do the things. And, and, you know, it, it does hurt, doesn't it? And there are days when it's just, oh, God, so brutally painful. But that voice in your head, Marie, like, honestly, it's really, it's quite emotional to, to listen to and to hear. But so powerful, so powerful. And I think that is almost a wonderful gift that he gave to you, isn't it? Those those words and via your friend Lewis, but just knowing that in your heart, almost like you say, giving yourself permission then to go and and live the way you want to live and, and make the most out of it. 
And I'm assuming that stayed with you throughout your journey. Throughout. And you know what? He in life, he was always kicking my butt. You know, he was always like calling me out on my shit. He was like the voice of truth. Like he could see me, you know, and he would know. He would know things about me that I didn't even know about myself. And so I feel like even in death, he's still kicking my butt and he's still telling me, like he's still the voice of truth, you know? And um, and yeah, my connection with him has helped me immensely. And another thing that's helped with the guilt too, it's that, you know, I knew like our love was so deep and profound and life-changing for both of us. And I knew I would grieve him for the rest of my life. You know, that was not, there's not a day that I'm going to wake up and be done with it or be moved on from the pain I feel because he's not here. So I knew I was going to miss him forever. I knew I was going to cry over his death forever. I know my grief is going to be a part of me forever. And so, you know, me living doesn't feel like I'm forgetting because I'm not forgetting because he's, you know, his death is always with me and that helps, you know. It really does. I think there's a there's a, a a very large misconception, isn't there, in life that if you are living a good life, a full life, a meaningful life, you have found new love, created joy, done something amazing, like that takes away, diminishes somehow your your love, your loss, your grief. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean any of those things. It it does come with us. You know, we're not trying to move on from it we're trying to move with it because it it is it's it's there and it's always going to be but it doesn't always look the way we think it looks grief does it you know I think we have this vision that grief is pain and heartache and tears and sorrow and it is those things but it's there's also so much more isn't there that that you know comes with us that we you know the I guess in how we behave and who we become as people that is shaped by the grief, but it doesn't always look the way we think it's going to look. You, you, you said about creating a meaningful life and, and that's sort of how you, I guess, define who you are in, in a, in a way that that helps you define who you are now how did you go about creating something meaningful for you after your loss? Because that's really hard, isn't it? That's that's something I think a lot of people struggle with. I think there's also an idea that that, that meaning has to come from something big, something outrageous, um, which I don't believe it does. So when you say you've created a meaningful life, how did you go about creating that? And what does that look like for you? Where is the meaning in your life? Mm, such a good question. And again, this is like a, a process and an unfolding. And I think these things take longer than we want them to take, you know. Um, but at first, it was about just noticing, again, when we go back to like, just the witnessing of ourselves inside of our lives, it was about noticing what felt meaningless, you know, so at first, it, the question wasn't, how do I create a meaningful life? It was like, what feels meaningless in my life right now? And, and a month after Andrea died, I had to go back to work in my teaching job because they had given me seven months off. And then I was going to lose my job if I didn't go back. 
So I had like four weeks to move out of our place and move back in with my mom. <laughs> just, <laughs> I was, I was in such a weird place, but I had to go back to work. And I remember just crying in the hallway in, in, in the staircase at my work every morning and calling my friend. And I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> I don't want to be talking about entrepreneurship with kids. I mean, it brought me, it, br- it was meaningful enough when Andrea was here and I derived so much meaning from our relationship and from our family life and from what we were building together. But without him, my job just didn't feel meaningful enough. And I didn't want to go. <laughs> I had to go because I had to pay the bills, but I didn't want to go. So I knew that again, it's like this inner knowing of like, okay, if my job doesn't feel meaningful anymore, I'm going to have to do something else. Um, And it took years for me to kind of shift away from that job. Um, But I knew in my heart that I had to do something else. Like I had to do work in the world that felt meaningful enough that I wanted to get up every day. Because I'm someone who feels very deeply. I'm very, very sensitive. So grief is very hard for me (laughs) because I can fall back into despair, into depression easy. And so for me, creating a meaningful life is literally survival. If my life feels meaningless, then I won't want to get up every day. And I'm going to stay in my bed. (laughs) Mm. I'm just going to stay there. I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to be adulting. (laughs) (laughs) And so I knew I had to find work in the world that felt meaningful and meaningful to me meant being of service in some way. And that's the reason I went into education in the first place. I was never someone who kind of dreamed about climbing the corporate ladder. Like that did not bring me a sense of meaning. And that's just me. I'm not saying that there's not a right or a wrong way to go about creating a meaningful life. It's a very personal journey, but I've always worked with, with youth. I've always worked in education. I always worked to create experiences where kids could discover who they were like apart from just going to class. And, um, and so I don't remember where I was going with this, but anyway, (laughs) I love that. But that didn't work for me anymore. So yeah, being of service in some way. So I felt like I was of service to the youth I was working with, but that was no longer enough. And so I just had to follow my intuition again. And I started writing about my grief at first for myself and then publicly on, well, publicly, but anonymously on Instagram. (laughs) And then I started connecting with, you know, like-minded women who are also living with the loss of someone they couldn't live without, you know, and then I, I saw so much pain and I saw a need for connection, for community. I saw, I saw women who felt really alone and really isolated, especially young widows. You know, like I was 32 when Andrea died and I didn't know anyone except my grandmother who was a widow. And so by writing on Instagram, I got to connect with other young widows who also felt very alone, who felt like there were no resources where they were in person and they didn't felt like aliens walking this world just living with something so painful and difficult, but walking that journey all on their own. And so from there, I started having just a little, like an idea, like I have to do something. And I didn't necessarily know it was going to become kind of my work in the world or my job, but at least writing and connecting and bringing people together felt so meaningful to me that I just kept doing it every single day. And then eventually that became 
you know, the business I have now and the community that I have now, which brings so much meaning to my life. And to many others, you know, what you do, your work, you know, I know helps so many people in so many ways, you know, you sharing your, your knowledge, your wisdom, your insights, it, you know, it, you are born to do it. And, you know, it does, you do it so beautifully. You do it so beautifully, but I think you're right. It again, it is again, that self-awareness working out what, what helps us, what fuels us, what hinders us, um, you know, what takes away from us and really following our, our intuition. And I think we sometimes forget to do that, don't we? Of what feels right, leaning into what feels right because we're so busy trying to please other people and do things the right way and be a certain person to fit in with, with what society tells us that we, you know, we should fit in with rather than leaning into what feels right for us, because we are also different, aren't we? And we all do this in our own unique way. Um, but again, it's, it's time as well. It's time to figure all this stuff out. And it, to your point, it takes a lot longer than we want it to take. You know, we desperately want the answers a lot sooner than we get them. And that's hard. That's hard, that, that, that waiting game. When, you know, talking about identity and who we are, I love, you know, how you spoke about it in terms of basing it on your values, you know, who you are at your core, what's important to you, what brings meaning to your life. A lot of the time, when you ask somebody who are you, they will they will give you labels, won't they? You know, like I'm I'm a I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm a mum, I'm a sister, I'm a nurse, um, I'm a veterinarian. What you know, wh- whatever the, the labels are, the roles that we play in life, and you know, I've been I've been sort of thinking about this a lot recently. I've been reading about it, and um, we have over here a fantastic doctor turned um, a motivational speaker, author um, called Dr. Chatterjee. I don't know if you, you know who he is, um, but you know he's just written a book, and in it he talks about you know our, our identity and who we are at our core. And actually how it's not always that helpful to identify with our, our roles in, in life, because, you know, those, those labels, those roles that we play can be taken away from us, can't they? In, you know, somebody might die. You, you're a mother, your kids might grow up and they leave home. You know, you, you're no longer need that empty nest syndrome. You've, you've, you've got a job, you know, you're, you're a successful accountant in a law firm the law firm collapses and you suddenly you've got no job you you're left feeling stripped of your identity of who you are and this happens a lot and you must see it in grief as well you know when you have a profound loss when somebody significant dies and it takes one of those roles away from you it leaves you feeling very isolated, alone, scared, unsure, uncertain of who you are and where you fit in in the world. So do you think it's 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 more helpful to lean into our values to describe who we are as a person as opposed to the roles and the identities that, that we have in life? I think so, one million percent. <laughs> And that's my opinion. And that's the way I go about my work as well um, in my coaching practice with the women 
who I'm so blessed to work with. But I always say, you know, goals are good. And, you know, it's good to set goals and have a sort of a plan on, you know, what we want to achieve and who we want to be in the world. But things outside of us can be taken away. And we've had this experience firsthand of Mm -hmm. something outside of us being taken away and that identity that was wrapped up with that thing or with that person just you know just goes away in sometimes from one moment to the next and so for example in in my work you know when I work with someone who really let's say a widow who wants to be repartnered you know because because she thrives in a relationship and she thrives in partnership and that's where she feels most fulfilled and that's where she derives a great sense of meaning we work on because not having that relationship is very painful so we work on you know obviously a core value for her would be love and connection and how can I cultivate love and connection in my life every day even if I'm not in a committed partnership even if I'm not married to my person because he died you know beyond the things we want you know underneath the things we want there's there's a value that's important to us. And what is that? It's like getting to the core of why do we want things we want, you know? And if we want to be in a partnership, it's because we, for us, love, connection, um, relationships mean a lot to us. And you get to cultivate that right now, you know, Mm. even as a widow with the loved ones that you have that are still here with your friends, with, you know, with your parents, if you're lucky enough to have them, with your kids, if you have them. And so I definitely think that getting down to beyond what do you want or what goals you want to set for yourself, like, why do you want the things you want, you know, and then can you cultivate those values um, and those qualities in your life right now? And something Mm -hmm. else I try to do in my own life is, you know, I don't, I no longer do like five-year plans or like, what, what do I see? myself doing in retirement like I don't know if I'm gonna get there I don't know if I'm gonna be (laughs) hit by a bus tomorrow so that doesn't connect with me anymore you know making plans I don't have the same relationship with making plans as I used to but I try to ask myself how do I want my life to feel you know instead of like what do I want to accomplish or what do I want to get or what goals do I want to set I'm like no how do I want my life to feel what do I want to cultivate in my life you know and right now I'm really working on kind of cultivating more joy and more peace and more calm. And that's Mm. something I can aim for every day and I can work on every day, no matter what's happening outside of me, like no matter if, you know, more loss happens or I'm having a, a bad grief day or, you know, I'm currently moving through a breakup, you know? Um, and I've been talking about it a little bit on, on my page. So if those who follow me will, will know, but that has been really, really difficult for me. So, but every day by asking myself, how do I want my life to feel? I get to kind of shift closer to living in alignment and living in integrity with who I really am in a way that isn't dependent on anything outside of me or dependent on me having the perfect relationship or having the perfect business or, you know, having an X amount of money in my bank account or, you know, it's, it's, independent of all of these things over which I really have no control. Mm. 
Yeah, 100%. It's very much, isn't it, focusing on, on the things that we can control. And I think what we need in the present moment, it, you know, it is it is sometimes nice to have goals and ideas for, for what you're, you're working towards and striving for. But we don't always know, you know, that that's going to be there for us, uh, that we'll make it there, um, or even that that's what we'll even want at that point. Because we change, we keep, you know, we kind of, you think you want this thing and then actually you start going down this path and you think, oh, no, I don't. I want that thing. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's kind of, a, you know, allowing yourself, I guess, to, to, to be fluid in it all, isn't it? Do you think we ever get to a point in life where we are, are fixed on who we are? We understand our core values. We understand what's meaningful to us, that we get to this destination where we have complete clarity on on all of those things or do you think it is being more fluid and allowing the ebb and flow of life to, to take us sometimes in directions that we hadn't thought of or planned um because that's just what feels right and we're constantly evolving oof I think both. Can I say both? I mean, I think that there's, there's a core, you know, we have a, I don't know, we have like a soul and there's, you know, one of my core values is love, connection, commitment to the people in my life. I can't imagine a day where that will no longer be something I care about, you know? So I think that there's a, there's a core of who we are that remains but then how does that manifest in your life? Like, what does it look like in your life? That gets to shift and ebb and flow. And what, how I'm living out my values today might be very different than how I'm living them out in 10 years. Because I think mm. we're always, we're always becoming, you know, I don't think that there's a, there's a point where you stop growing and learning and becoming. Maybe, I don't know, maybe mm. when you've, when you figure it all out, maybe you die. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end point. <laughs> You've learned everything you need to know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway, at, at least speaking for myself, I, I know that I'm constantly becoming. Like, I don't feel that I'm going to reach a point where I'm going to be like, I have all of this figured out. Like, I think I'm, I constantly feel like a student of this really beautiful and challenging and hard life <laughs> that we get to live. Are you comfortable with that? Because I know, like, you know, we've kind of touched on it, haven't we? That in our grief, we want all the answers. We want to know where we're heading, who we're going to become, who we are as people, how to create a meaningful life. And as we said, it you, you know, it does take a really long time. Did, you know, and now, you've, now you're comfortable, you're, you're, I say comfortable, you're accepting of the fact that that takes time. I'm not sure comfortable is the right word. Was there a point in, in your journey, in your grief, where you became frustrated, where you were like, I need to know, I, I need this to hurry up, I, I want to know what the answers are, and I want to get there quicker than I'm getting there at the moment? I mean, I think I'm still that way. <laughs> I want all the answers. I want someone to give me a 10-step plan for how to do life, <laughs> how to do life with min like a minimum amount of suffering. I am never comfortable with the fact that I, you know, sometimes I feel like I have very little control over how my life just kind of unfolds. And I'm not comfortable with that. I don't know. 
I mean, I think you have to reach a really high level of enlightenment to be fully surrendering to the flow of life and grief and loss. And yeah, that's not me. I'm in constant resistance. I go to my therapist. I'm like, tell me what to do. Tell me how to fix this. Um, yeah, not comfortable, but constantly learning and striving and surrendering again and again and again and again, but always in discomfort. <laughs> Love it. Do, do you have any sort of unhealthy coping mechanisms when you're when you're in that space that you know you really shouldn't be doing that you're maybe leaning on or or using as, as a way to 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 block that discomfort somehow? Or, or do you just allow yourself to sit in it and go, I know this is going to be awful, but I will come out the other side? Yes, I mean, I I would I'm a very controlling person. <laughs> if I could, I would control all of my life and all of the people in it. And I would just tell everybody how to behave <laughs> because I know what they need to do in order for all of us to be happy. Okay. <laughs> so, I love your honesty. <laughs> <laughs> and it upsets me very much when my people don't listen to me <laughs> because I know what we need. <laughs> Um, so um, control is something I go into a lot, you know, trying to control my circumstances, my life, trying to control other people in my life, their actions. Um, I go there really easily, you know, as soon as there's uncertainty, as soon as someone, you know, um, just, just with my, my, my recent breakup, you know, it's just, I'm learning to let him be himself but I have tried to control him and I have tried to make him do what I want him to do. And just, you know, we all know that doesn't work. And so, but yeah, control is, is, is kind of the beast that I have to constantly grapple with and say, you know what, I'm not in control. And do I, can I just surrender and just try to cultivate this trust and faith that even if life is unfolding in a way in a way that in the moment I feel is wrong or bad or I don't want this, can I cultivate the trust and faith that maybe on the other side of this, there is something that I actually need? You know, maybe I'm not getting what I want, but maybe I'm going to get what I need. Wow, this is very hard for me. <laughs> I know it is so hard and that, you know, that I know there's so much going on for you at the moment, but what I think is just so wonderful is that you you absolutely own it. You know, you're, you're not, you're not lying to yourself, are you? That there's that, that you are completely aware of, of who you are and what you try to do and, and, and live your life. And, and I think that's a really important message for people. Like we all have nuances, things, facets, pieces of us that, you know, that don't always serve us. They do in some areas of our life, but in others, they don't. And, and it's understanding that we can't be perfect. We're not going to be able to control all these pieces of us and, and make them work in beautiful, energetic ways. And sometimes they do work against us. But we have to accept that almost sometimes, don't we? We're not striving to be perfect. We're just striving to be a little bit better today than we were yesterday, maybe, and, and learn from, from how we've been, how we've behaved, the thoughts that we've had. And, and 
you know, I guess try and do things a little bit differently if they've they've caused us some discomfort or some suffering in, in how we've been with, with those parts of us in our lives. But it's not easy. It's not easy, is it? It's not as easy as just recognizing these things and going, oh, yeah, OK, that's what I'm, I'm going to stop. If it was that simple, we'd all have this figured out, wouldn't we? But you're right. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned in, in my journey is, you know, we think we have the answers a lot of the time, but we really don't. We, there's a, there's very little that we know about what's coming and sitting in uncertainty feels a lot more uncomfortable sometimes than others, for sure. After a death, after a breakup, after, you know, the, these life events that happen that shift us into something that we don't know that we don't understand but knowing that on the other side of uncertainty you're going to be okay and and for me I just have to keep reminding myself of that you know when you're going through difficult times heartache challenges it, it is really difficult isn't it it takes so much out of us and and it brings up so much grief as well because you know when we go through something else and challenges are going to keep happening aren't they things are going to keep happening to us in life you, you just you know if you get one thing it doesn't mean you're not going to get any others um but learning that yeah you've got to go through the process and and hope that on the other side of that there is happiness for you and and holding on tightly to that because you know otherwise it can just feel too too heavy I know for me anyway I really like to hold on to that you said something so profound there it's like trusting you know that on the other side of the hard thing you're going to be okay Mm -hmm. and I think getting back to the conversation on identity you know when you're rebuilding after a big loss when you're when you're getting more clarity around who you are, what matters to you, and you're cultivating a life that feels in alignment with those core values, you know, with what really, really matters, you are literally rebuilding solid ground beneath yourself. And the bad things out there will keep happening because that's the nature of being a human in this world. You know, their life is hard, but there's ground now beneath you to hold you, you know, you you are going to be okay. And it's like, when something else comes for you, the ground doesn't swallow you whole anymore, because you mm-hmm. have rebuilt something that is independent mm-hmm. of what's happening out there. You've rebuilt something from within, you know, your sense of self from within. And I think that is something you can believe in, and you can trust in, and you can lean on, you know, and, and that's what I'm feeling now in this season of my life as I'm moving through this breakup it's like when Andrea died the ground swallowed me whole you know because so much of myself was wrapped up in him and us Mm. I didn't fully know who I was you know especially without him Um, and in the process of kind of healing and rebuilding after his death I have rebuilt a sense of solid ground and so now Mm. you know this this hard thing happen is happening to me but I don't feel as untethered as I felt when Andrea died, you know, because mm. I feel like, well, there are some really core pieces of my life and of myself that are still here. Mm. And yeah, this thing, you know, isn't here anymore, but all these other things are here and I'm still, still feel held 
by my life, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. And it's something, you know, it's one of the, the, the sessions that I hold in, in my program is a building those solid foundations, you, you know, like you wouldn't build a house on a bed of jelly, would you? You know, it's it's not going to stay standing for very long. It's going to be very easy to knock down and trying to rebuild the house again is going to be a nightmare. And it is having that solid ground, those solid foundations that you can build up from so that, you know, when life does happen and maybe knocks you down a little bit, A, it's going to be harder to knock you down because you've got those solid foundations. But equally, if something does, you are able to, to rebuild again upon those foundations and it it does it it allows you to feel tethered to something as opposed to just completely you know swallowed up by all and and trying to claw yourself out of a a very deep and dark hole so yeah I can I can completely relate to that so what would you say Marie then is is the biggest thing that your your grief has taught you and not that it has to um but I know it it has I have gained a lot from from my loss and I've learned a lot from it about life about myself um about other people what what's been your biggest learning what has it given to you it's hard to pinpoint just one Mm. you know and again not that my loss had to teach me anything but it's like this loss happened And so there was learning, you know, from it Um, so much, I guess, I guess it just gave me a whole other perspective on life, you know, where I used to think, oh, life is long and we have a lot of time. And so I guess I used to take certain things for granted, even if they felt very meaningful and important, like time with my loved ones or how, how I show up in my relationship with my with my son, um, those things have changed because I no longer take time for granted at all. Um, There's not one single morning where I drop my son to school that I don't give him an extra hug just in case, you know, and that can feel for some people who haven't been through loss that can feel like, oh my God, like there's something seriously wrong with you. (laughs) But but it's not morbid or anything. It's just, it's, it's, he's here, we're here now. And we're just going to hold on a little bit more because this matters, you know, and we, we love each other. And so I think I love my people more deeper, or at least I try, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm so imperfect. So I'm, you know, everything I'm saying, I, I, you know, I fail at things often, but I remind myself to be more present, to make more time, to call that friends, to, to show up for the people in my life when they need me. Um, I think I'm more patient, you know, with, with my loved ones. I think I'm better able to meet people where they're at. Um, I think I have a hell of a lot more compassion, um, a lot more empathy for human suffering, Mm -hmm. you know, and I have a real desire to, to not bypass or try to fix the suffering in other people. But I have like a real desire to go and sit in the suffering with another human because that's the thing that has really helped me in my own grief and in my life. You know, mm-hmm. having people who don't look away, who don't turn away, who don't get uncomfortable, who don't try to fix, 
but who just joined me in the suffering so that I feel a bit more human and a bit less alone. And I think maybe that may be one of the big, the biggest things I've learned from mm. my grief is how to, how to be with the suffering that is an inherent part of being a human. And I think I do that so much better for my loved ones, for my clients. Um, yeah, just for all the humans in my life. Mm. I think so beautifully put Marie, because we're not very good at being with people, are we? And witnessing people's pain and hurt and grief you know we want to fix people as, as human beings like we want we want to fix things and and pain makes us feel deeply uncomfortable but to find someone I think in your heartache in your pain that will sit beside you whilst you hurt witness you make you feel seen and heard and validated and not not make you feel like you're being judged or criticized because you're getting it wrong with sometimes the things that they say and and it does take a, a very special person to be able to do that and you are a very special person so I think that's such a wonderful gift to to give to others in their time of need because there's so much healing in that space it doesn't feel like it at the time always but god it's powerful it's super powerful so what advice would you give Marie now to yourself, to, to other widows in, in the early days, you know, now being sort of nearly five years in and, you know, still, still grieving, still feeling the, the emotions and going through life stuff. What would, what would you go back and say to that early widowed Marie that might help others that are, are you know, in the early days of their grief now and, and struggling with, with who they are? Mm. I think if I could go back and just like tell myself anything, it would be like, there's no fire under my butt. Like I can, I can just <laughs> slow down take my time I was I really had such a sense of urgency that I had to you know and I didn't even understand my own suffering that well back then so I was trying to fix myself I was mm. trying to you know I was asking people for the answers I was asking my therapist for the answers I was asking these spiritual guides for answers I was asking psychics for I was and Google don't forget Google Google right <laughs> of course I was just trying to fix and I had a real sense of urgency that I must figure this out now, you know? Um, and if I could go back and if I could tell anyone anything, it would be just, it's okay to slow down. And in fact, in moving more slowly, I think that's when we have the space and the time for the self-awareness that we are cultivating and that we need. We have the time to be a witness to our own selves inside of this grief you know I had to learn to get to know my grief you know and and it took me maybe two full calendar years to really understand how my grief manifests in the different seasons of it you know in the you know depending on the time of the year and how am I going to feel Andrea died in the summer so how do I feel in the summer versus how do I feel in the fall you know on the other mm -hmm. side of the big mm -hmm. anniversaries and so slowing down being a witness to your own life, being a witness to your own suffering, understanding how your suffering, you know, 
manifest? Like, what does it make you do? What are your coping mechanisms? What are the things that you turn to when you're deep in the dark of grief? Like understanding all of these things about myself has been so valuable. And then once you, you know yourself, you understand yourself, then you get to make different choices if you want to make different choices. But before you get to know yourself in grief, you can't even choose because most of it is just unconscious. We're so uncomfortable and we're just, you know, acting out in all these ways to try to fix and feel better and just, you know, numb, avoid, push down, whatever. Um, so just slowing down, <laughs> you know, and this, this is going to take the time it's going to take anyway. I wish someone had told me that, you know, there's no, you can try to move fast. You can try to outrun your grief. But the grief is going to unfold on its own time. And so it's almost like just mm -hmm. surrendering to it and just allowing it to be wild and untamed for a while, you know? Yeah. yeah. Wise, very wise words. You know, some real golden nuggets <laughs> in memory because you're right. And I think, you know, it's hard though, isn't it, when you're in that pain that deep raw grief like you just want to get out of it you want to know when it's going to be over you, you know I did exactly the same thing <laughs> asking people finding groups like when did you do this and when did you feel that and when did you get remarried and when did you get a job and when when did the pain stop and all that kind of stuff because you want timelines you want timelines but there aren't any and and to your point we will do this at our own pace at our own time and that's just the way it is and surrendering to it, slowing down and taking your time is, is sound advice, but I know so hard, so hard. To, to take on, so hard to take on when you're in it. But I mean, Marie, I could honestly, I could talk to you for hours, hours and hours and hours. I wish we had hours. I'm going to have to come over to Canada and <laughs> hunt you down. Please come, please come <laughs> over anytime. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. But I mean, you've shared so much. You've shared so, so very much. And I'm so grateful to you for, for opening your heart. But just, just let people know what you do now, Marie. And I know you help people in many ways um, through different griefs and, and different programs. So how, how can you help? And if, if people want some help from you, how can they go about finding more out about it? Yes. So um, I am a coach and I am also a certified death doula. And so my work is really to provide a space where women get to just be with the fullness of their grief and the fullness of their humanity. And they get to tell the truth about what it's really like. And they get to kind of process the complexity of grief alongside another human, which mm -hmm. is me. <laughs> <laughs> and so we get to just be, we get to enter the vortex of your grief and your suffering. And we get to make sense of what's happening to you, you know? And um, so I do individual grief support. So one-on-one, -on -one, and I also run um, a couple different types of groups because I find that there's a lot of power in bringing people together because one of the main points of suffering is this sense of isolation, you know, grief and trauma really separates us from other people. And so I kind of try to bring people together to kind of bridge those. Um, yeah, just like create relationships and create bonds and try to break that sense of isolation that so many of us feel. So 
some of the groups that will be running in the in the fall. Um, I always run Sisterhood in Grief, which is for early grievers. It's three months long and we get to walk through the holidays together. So I've been doing this for the last two years and it's been so wonderful because the holidays, especially when it's the first time you move through, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and entering a new year where maybe your person, you know, your person has not lived in this new year. It's very hard. And so we get to do that together and we get to be in all the feelings together. So that's sisterhood and grief. And then I run rebuild and rise, which is so special to me, which is longer. It's six months long. And again, it will begin again in the fall. And this is for the widow who's in kind of the middle phase of her grief. So she's not an early griever, you know, she's kind of been in the dark with the untamed grief for a while. And now her head is kind of above water and she's looking around and she's like, what, what is my life? What do I want to do? Like, how do I want to rebuild? And what would make life feel meaningful for me? And it can be a really confusing and lonely place to be. And so we get to do that together. We get to navigate just getting to know ourselves and figuring out our values and trying new things. And we get to just navigate sometimes dating again, or, you know, going on a first date or the first time we're intimate with someone else or, you know, shifting careers completely going back to school. We get to go through all of these things together. Um, and so, and so, yeah, that's what I do. And those things, those two groups will be opening again in the fall. I'm going to be taking some time off this summer to kind of work rework the curriculum. Um, I have some beautiful collaborations coming in as well. Um, I, I work with a trauma counselor who is going to come in and explain the difference between grief and trauma. Because so many of my clients do have trauma inside of their grief and we get to tend to trauma very differently mm-hmm. than grief, you know? And so um, I'm getting, I'm going to get some extra support around that in both of the groups. And so, yeah, I'll be working on that this summer and I'm very excited to kind of you know, open that up again in the fall for my community. And until then, you know, I'm very active on Instagram. This is where I put out all of my thoughts <laughs> and I have many thoughts. on do. <laughs> many powerful <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you can find me always almost every day on Instagram at empowered underscore through underscore grief. Come and say hi. You know, I, I run this thing all by myself. And so my mom helps me a little bit sometimes when I get overwhelmed. But if you write me a message on Instagram, I'm the one who responds to every single message. I try to respond to most of the comments. Sometimes some might fall through the cracks, but I'm very active and I try to, I really try to create a sense of community, you know, in, in the space that I'm creating. So yeah, come and say hi. <laughs> you do. I, I will put all of those those links in the in the show notes so that people can easily access them there as well to to your website, to your groups, to, to your Instagram as as well, so that people can can follow those. And I mean, are the groups are they they're for all grief, are they, or, or just for widows? How do you? So sisterhood and grief is open to all types of losses, and so okay. we have a mixed group. And then um, rebuild and rise is really for widows who okay. are navigating partner loss. And a widow it means I mean you don't have to be married. It's just if you lost someone, yeah. you know you're building a life with. Um, yeah. So that yeah. one is just for just for widowhood. Yes. Yeah. Marie, honestly, you are such a beautiful soul. You really are. You are just so inspiring and so nurturing. Like everything that you write really kind of 
grabs you right here in the heart. You, the way you are able to articulate what we go through and how we feel and the thoughts we have is nothing short of extraordinary. It really is. You, you are a unique soul and you help so many and thank you for that you, you know it's it's brilliant I know you helped me on on my journey um after my husband died um well it was a couple of years I think I found you afterwards but just amazing what you have created and I just want to thank you again so much for your time for your wisdom for your energy everything that you have shared today I know everyone is going to absolutely adore this conversation and probably listen to it more than once because it has just been incredible so thank you thank you so much Marie thank you thank you so much for everything thank you for being in my world in my life I'm grateful for you oh bless you Marie you take care thank you Thank you so much for listening today on The Widow Podcast. If you would like to find out more about how I can help you, please visit my website, www.karensutton.co.uk. I would love to help you find your way forward to a brighter future. So get in touch, let's have a conversation and let's help you take back control and find a more positive way through your grief. I look forward to hearing from you.